Welcome to the Mastering Attention Podcast, where we talk to top mobile game experts about their experiences running successful games. This podcast is presented by UserWise, the live ops engine for studios who want to engage, retain, and monetize their players using real-time data, personalization, and A-B testing. This week, Tom speaks with Ruby Erlings, Director of Production at GSN Games. We'll be talking about the benefits of Agile and Lean production methodologies. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, your host and co-founder of UserWise. And today, I am delighted to be with Miss Ruby Erlings, who is currently Director of Production at GSN. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, correct. Awesome. Thanks for having so, me. Yeah, this is going to be super fun. We're going to get to talk about you know game production and all sorts of fun things. Um, before we do that, though, I always like to start with, you know, Ruby, what's your story? Like, how'd you get into games and into where you are? Sure. I think I've got a fun story. Um, I think I must have been about the age of 12, all right? And this was the time when Lord of the Rings was a really, you know, trendy topic. The movies were about to come out. And at the time, I started, you know, exploring the world of tech. And I started to explore web design because I wanted to make a um, website about elves. I was obsessed about elves. I did archery. I wanted to do everything Lord of Rings related and create the best elf website out there. So what my dad did is he hosted a website for me. I started to learn HTML. And um, as I kind of got older and throughout the years, at one point, my dad comes to me and he says, Ruby, the hosting company just rang. And he said, you know, we were out of limits for for the, the package that we had because you're getting too much traffic. What are you doing over there? And uh, I explained, well, you know, I'm working on this uh, elf site and I've got all these affiliate links to other elf sites. And uh, here we go. And I have 50,000 visitors coming from the U.S. alone. <laughs> so at that point, I think me and my, my dad kind of, you know, realized like, OK, tech is something that I'm into. Fast forwarding a little bit for you to, uh, you know, my university days, I figured I was going to be a engineer or programmer, uh, depending how you want to call them. Uh, and um, I went to university to study game design and development. It took me about two weeks in the study that I realized I was not going to be a programmer and that coding, you know, my elf side was completely different than coding games. But I was all right, because uh, at the time at uni, you had only three pathways, really, that you could pick from. You could become a game artist, which I knew I could never do because I'm not very artistically uh, gifted. I could become uh, a game programmer, okay? So that was, you know, dream that I wanted to end there. Or you could become a game designer. So for a moment there, I thought, okay, game design is the path to go. Uh, I think, you know, I've got some skills. I was really into gaming, uh, especially um, strategy games, Age of Empires, Civilization, those type of games. So I figured, let's give it a shot. And as I made my way to uni, um, you had to do the course of those three different lanes and then specialize. And uh, at the end of the second year, um, we did something that I kind of refer to as idols. There was like this business jury or um, expert jury, professional jury that the school invited over. And what you had to do was present your game projects that you had worked on throughout the first two years of your university course. And that's when I met someone called uh, Jepe van Seventer, uh, very well known uh, for the Dutch Game Garden in the Netherlands. And uh, I was presenting and I was showing him the stuff I was doing. He stopped me and I will never forget because he told me, Ruby, there's a name for what you're doing and it's called being a game producer. And that was the first time I had ever heard of what a game producer is, what they do. I had never thought about it because until that point, I've only worked on school uh, projects and you could only be one out of the three paths. So, well, I learned about game production then and uh, I've never looked back. So fast forwarding 10 years or so, well, 12, I must say, here we are. So if you had to define what a game producer is and what they actually do, what would that be? So this is a tough one. I always, you know, joke about this when you're at a party or something and you're trying to describe what you're doing, right? So I summarize it in two ways. 
for me, game production is being a niche project manager where you have a lot of expertise about how games are developed that you apply to manage the game development team. But when you ask me, what do I day, day, what do I do day to day? I just say I manage expectations. That's what I do. I talk to a lot of people, I get all their input and I you know, fast forward, um, um, spread the information and manage everyone's expectations. Yeah. That's the simplest I can do. <laughs> so um, just say, are you guys fully remote kind of in office? I'm, I'm curious, you know, when COVID hit, how, you know, having all those conversations and stuff maybe like changed for a remote company versus like an in-person company where you can just wander over to someone's desk and ask them how things are going or whatnot. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, I speak of, you know, probably all game producers that initially when uh, uh, we worked in office and then all of a sudden during the, the pandemic, you had to work remote, that was a bit of a challenge. I think luckily working in tech as a whole, the whole IT situation was relatively straightforward because we all work on computers, we can all dial into meetings. And that was a transition that was maybe slightly easier than for other industries. But you're right, it was mainly the, the desk conversations that, you know, you were all of a sudden missing, walking by someone, seeing what they're doing, commenting on a fun animation or, you know, anything that you see on screen. So um, we, you know, my team anyways, adopted a couple of things that really worked for us. Um, the first one was we encouraged Slack calls. Yeah, video calls and just bringing people, having a bit of a chat because, Yes, you can type to each other. Yes, you can send each other email or, or Slack message or a Teams message, whatever tool you're using. But it's not quite the same as just having a quick chat with each other. So that was something that really helped us trying to, you know, keep the um, uh, vibe alive, if you will. Second, I think what was important was to make sure that you facilitate enough meetings. Now, this is tricky because there's also such a thing as too many meetings. <laughs> so, but it was definitely a transition compared to how we used to work um, where we just needed to make sure that we've informed everyone. Yeah. Do you find that there are maybe different game production methodologies that different teams use, you know, that we could maybe like go through and, and talk about like the pros and cons and of each of those? Yeah, for sure. I'm quite passionate about this topic um, because I think if you ask any producer out there, what method or production method do you use? I bet you that 99% of them will tell you we work agile. Everyone will say, yeah, we work agile, we do scrum or some adaptive version of that. Uh, some might, you know, work more Kanban than others. But um, recently I've completed an MBA and uh, I thought that was really eye-opening for me because there you learn about a lot more production or operation processes, it's called over there, that maybe are working in different industries that maybe are not so common in the game industry. And uh, I realized that the reason we really like Agile overall, right, is because a lot of game design is unpredictable. At the end of the day, we're trying to make a fun experience. But what is fun? Right? If we could describe that that easily, and it was that binary to find what fun is, we could have made waterfall processes, streamline everything, and every game that we would create would be perfect. But that's not the reality, is it? So the reason we like Agile is because we can iterate, get feedback from either our own teams or our users, and keep repeating that until you find the fun. However, on the flip side, uh, I argue that um, there are a lot of things that we do day to day that actually aren't that unknown or aren't that unpredictable. Like, let's take an example. If you were to work on a match three game, yeah. what do you know you need to do? Create match three levels. You know you need to do that. You need to do a lot of them. Or what, let's say we're working on a bingo game. What do you need to do? You need to create a lot of bingo rooms. Uh, maybe you're working on, let's say, a fashion game. You need to create a lot of outfits, a lot of dolls to dress up. Mm -hmm. So there are things that you know you just need to do in mass, right? And um, I realized that a lot of the manufacturing industry has a lot of success with lean methodologies. 
uh, a lot of these methodologies originally came from like the car manufacturing uh, industries, um, <laughs> particularly Japan. Um, you've got examples such as Kazen or Lean Six Sigma. And basically what those processes are trying to do is they're not trying to drill down necessarily on what the fun is, like the unknown. They're trying to perfect producing something. So you're mass producing your levels. So what you're trying to do is you find a process that you keep on perfecting and perfecting and perfecting until you do it better and faster and more efficient. Mm. So here so, we go. Yeah. Two so, different methodologies, two different problems. I love it. So maybe before we delve into those, um, for, for listeners who maybe aren't aware, can you just give like a high level definition of what the agile methodology is, kind of how it works day to day, if they maybe haven't, you know, taken part of that and then we'll do the same for the lean methodology after that for sure so um the agile methodologies came from software development so they all started with the assumption that um, you wanted to work in small increments and work together as a team to build and build and build and build in small iterations versus what used to be the predominantly um, production method, which we refer to as waterfall. Now, just for a bit of background, what the waterfall methodology would assume would be that first someone designs uh, what the game needs to be, hands it over to the next team, which might be the art team to create the art for it, who hands it over to the tech art team, who implements the art, who hands it over to tech to you know, build the mechanic, program the, um, the feature, then it goes to testing and then you would be done. The original methodologies before Agile would just assume that you did that for your product <laughs> and you had a very you know, defined starting point and a very defined end point. And as long as you followed the process, you're gonna have a perfect product. Mm-hmm. Now for software and more particularly in games, that was exactly what the problem was because unfortunately we cannot define upfront what the entire game design needs to be to make a fun experience for a user. So Agile was, you know, adopted for that reason. Um, It did not necessarily remove those dependencies between the departments that I just mentioned. But what it did do was it breaks down certain steps or certain iterations, we call them, uh, that you want to make to the game and efficiently run the team. So how that typically looks like is a sprint process. Uh, Sprints, depending on where you work, can last anywhere from maybe two weeks to up to four. And they start with planning what you and the team want to tackle that sprint. You make a list of all the to-do items. And then as the sprint starts, you do your daily stand-ups. For every day, you inform each other about what's happening. What are you working on? Do you need any help? And you repeat that process until at the end of the sprint, you hopefully have closed majority of your tasks. <laughs> that is the plan. Uh, you play that together. You note, you know, any future changes that you want to make. You add them to the backlog and you repeat. That's the, the core fundamental uh, agile process that a lot of the game teams use. Yeah, that's great. And how about the lean methodology for people that maybe are less familiar? I assume more game teams are familiar with agile, but uh, how about this uh, lean Ex- thing? Exactly. So what lean does, it's, it's interesting. Um, you're trying to first find something um, that is a process, okay? So it's something that you need to do repeatedly. Now, maybe for the sake of this you know, conversation, let's assume we're making that match three game and we're making match three levels. So the first thing that Lean does is just defining all the steps or stages that you need to um, complete before you have a match three level. Okay, so let's say that we have found a process and we're assuming that we found 10 different steps in that process. What the Lean methodology is trying to do is trying to see, do those 10 steps produce a consistent outcome or can we improve the outcome, which is the ultimate goal? Whether that's being faster at creating a level, whether that's creating a more fun or better quality level, that could be you know, different goals that you have in mind. And lean methodologies have different options to achieve that. One of them, and I know this sounds scary, is called statistical process control, SPC. Yeah, it sounds really scary. Don't worry, I'm going to simplify it. Sounds pretty scary, yeah. Yeah, don't worry. It's not as scary as as the name might suggest. 
basically what you're trying to do is um, with the SPC methodology is make it um, uh, or make an observation on a whether your process is in control, which basically means do we at the end of the process produce that match free level because if we don't then there's obviously something wrong with the process itself right if we don't even have a level at the end. But assuming that we're in control, how precise and how accurate can we be. Now a lot of people might you know struggle with that definition so one way I like to explain it is let's say that we have a bullseye okay and in the Center of that bullseye is the perfect match tree level. Right let's say that that's our goal. You want to create the perfect match three level. That's super what, fun. What play. is the the perfect match three level? Like is because I feel like there could be a, a whole slew of definitions in each match three level. I don't know. I feel like you know some of them, like the super hard levels. My goal is to actually monetize on the plus five moves. Other levels are about introducing a new mechanic. So you know, if I'm thinking about match three, and I, maybe I'm delving too far into the details here, but. Um, you know, if I'm producing multiple types of match three levels, would I kind of have a perfect bullseye for each of those different types with the particular goal for that level, whether it's like Correct. easy or introducing a new mechanic or whatnot? Correct. So you will need to find an abstract way to find out what, what would perfect look like for me. Okay. So for a match three level, uh, you could argue, okay, it needs to monetize with this certain KPI in mind, it needs to have this certain engagement KPI, whatever your goal is uh, that you wanna uh, achieve, right? This varies per team, this varies per uh, department, this varies per game probably. So it's more about the abstract concept of trying to find something that you are happy with, okay? The process is trying to have an outcome that you can define that you're happy with. So let's say, um, we want to have uh, that match tree level in, in this instance where the completion, uh, completion rate of uh, our users is 70%, right? I'm just making that up for the, the yeah. sake of this uh, conversation. Now, okay, the first question that the SPC methodology is measuring is, okay, uh, uh, without going to mathematical, do we even hit the board, right, of the bullseye? <laughs> maybe not. In, we're not maybe in the center, but do we hit the target in the first place? Okay. Yeah. Great. Let's assume that we do. Most processes, and I'm going to give you a heads up, and it's a bit of a spoiler for those of you who will uh, eventually calculate your own SPC, you will hit the board, okay? Because the fact that you have a process usually predicts that you have an outcome that is close to what you want. It's not always the case, though, but majority of the time. Now, we just, we just don't want to hit the target just for the sake of hitting the target. We want to get to that bullseye, right? So then there's two concepts that I think people uh, could wrap their head around. It's being accurate and precise. Now, let's say that if we took 10 uh, shots at creating a metry level, whether that's 10 different people or at one person 10 times in a row, for the sake of this example, that does not matter but we do that 10 times. If all those 10 arrows that we're shooting at this bull eye are in the same spot, okay? That means we're very precise. So whether that's in the bullseye or not, that does not matter at this point, but as long as they're grouped close together, that's a good sign. Because yep. let's assume that we did that, then all we need to do is we need to move that closer to that bullseye into the, the center of the target. If we were hitting around the circle of the target, really close to it, we could be accurate, right? So we're getting closer to that perfect level, but you know there might be some variation there. If we really want to hit the bullseye, we need to be precise and accurate at the same time. So all our arrows need to fly together and, and uh, hit the circle. And in a nutshell, what the lean um, a methodology of uh, SPC is trying to do is trying to help you optimize your process until you hit that spot. Interesting. Any questions so far before I go any deeper? I know that's a lot to digest. So, and it reminds me of uh, when I went to Boy Scout camp way, way, way back. We There was like a shooting range and to get the, the merit badge for that, you had to have 
five shots within, it was either like a quarter or a dime. So you had to have the consistency um, and you had to do that so many times to, to get the, you know, merit badge. Um, but it sounds like basically with lean, you know, ultimately we want every shot in the center of the bullseye, but before we maybe get there, the first thing is, can we consistently produce the same result of, let's say a level right. that has a 70%, you know, completion rate, you know, over and over and over again, then we try to figure out how do we get that to the centerpiece, which is maybe creating a level with a 10% completion rate, you know, over and over and over again, kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. One thing that I've uh, used this for myself, uh, which I would highly, you know, recommend, I'm very enthusiastic about it, was uh, to work with my teams on what our completion rate of a sprint was. So a different way of measuring velocity. Okay, if you uh, are unfamiliar with what velocity means, uh, it's something that our uh, producer friends use, trying to predict how well we do with uh, the work that we had planned versus what we completed and at what pace we burn down through the work. You might've heard of burn down charts as well. Now, the reason um, I initially started to uh, build a case for trying uh, this new SBC method out for sprint completion rates over um, uh, velocity was because velocity represents a lot of input from the team to daily update all their tickets, daily update all the hours that they spent on a certain task. And it's very bureaucratic and very, you know, manual um, um, to do. Yeah. And with that come a lot of problems, um, especially uh, what happens is if people know that you're measuring that and I'm not, you know, pointing at anyone in particular or any company in particular, but what happens is that, you know, the, these, these shift because you want to make sure that you hit your targets and that the targets look good. It's very hard to just say, is this team working well based on, on um, estimates and hours that you get back? So that's why I thought that was a problematic metric to use because it doesn't tell you if your game is getting any better. It just tells you whether people are good estimators or not. Mm. Does that make sense so far? <laughs> yeah. So I was looking okay. for an alternative way. And I, I didn't think about that too. I, I do know that, you know, one of my past jobs where we had like log our time or whatnot, I might have increased or decreased the time based on what I thought the expectation was, you know, in terms of what you you're go. spending your time on and stuff like that. And you you know, maybe it wasn't drastic, but if you're trying to accurately use that stuff and measure it, I mostly am, oh, well, I just want to look like a good employee. And so- Exactly. And it's things, natural. Yeah. yeah. And this happens a lot. And I've seen this, you know, throughout my career in different teams and it's not with a uh, bad intent. It's trying to, well, pr probably people trying to manage our expectations as a business, <laughs> trying to, you know, uh, predict something that would be something that the company is willing to hear. So how I applied this uh, SPC meta to, to that sprint completion rate was uh, for me, I set a certain target of how many goals, I call them, we wanted to complete as a team per sprint, because um, we wanted to combine it with working agile, because we are still having tasks in our sprint that are unpredictable and hard to, you know, um, uh, know whether it, this is going to be fun uh, as a summary. Uh, so we set a certain percentage that we had in mind. And um, from there, I started measuring. And what I very quickly learned was uh, that there were different reasons why we couldn't make a certain sprint goal. And um, some people, this isn't another, you know, uh, terminology that um, you might not know, we made a fishbone diagram, a root cause diagram, Ishikawa diagram, see, all I same, same, same thing. I a long time. Oh, I yeah. know. So it's like flashback, but it is a tool basically where as a team, you sit down and you try to come up with every reason why you think a process might not have the desired outcome. So what could, you know, cause you to not make a sprint as a team? Various reasons. So on one end, it could be technology going down or, uh, you know, if your computer breaks, well, then you need to wait for a replacement. Boom, you didn't hit your goals. Now, that might be a bit uncommon, mm -hmm. but maybe uh, sickness in the team. Okay, well, you know, um, that could be a certain percentage that you keep in mind. Perhaps you don't make your goal because some of the specifications weren't clear. Right? There was a lot of back and forwards, and that is time consuming. 
So you make a whole list of, you know, what those reasons could be and, and the whole team participates in trying to find those uh, kind of problems. And as you know about those problems, you can obviously start to address some of them. Unfortunately, you cannot really address, you know, people getting sick or computers breaking down, but you can take some measurements of, you know, creating buffer or things like that to make sure that you cope for, for those unforeseen things. And by applying the, the SPC methodology and by comparing the completion rates, which was my target, right? That was my bullseye. I wanted to hit X percentage of sprint completion every sprint. Over time, you start to see that you're becoming more and more precise and accurate. And it's a really nice way to, to over time measure. But what it does warrant for, and this is why, you know, I will skip the mathematical part, but the mathematical part is important. It's trying to figure out whether you had an outlier of a sprint or not. And um, I think that concept is best to um, you know, compare it to a machine. Let's say we have a machine shooting at that target, trying to hit the bullseye. If one arrow flies out slightly more than the rest, you're not gonna recalibrate the whole machine. If 99% of your arrows is in the right spot, you might, you know, uh, just see, okay, let's do another thousand shots and see where those will land. But that is something that production particularly is very sensitive to, to immediately react and immediately try to fix a problem that might just be an outlier of a special sprint. And uh, I think that's really is something that I recommend to, um, uh, to produ producers out there and uh, wider business folks, not always overreact when something goes wrong double check, is this an outlier, yes or no, before you change the whole process that might be working just fine. Yeah. So um, do you feel like you have a recommendation of like using Agile and Lean together or? Yes, know? that's right. Yes. Do so you, in my perfect yeah. world, they are married. Um, you don't, you know, if you speak to any consultant, whether it's an Agile consultant or a Lean consultant, they will both say you should follow their methodology to a T. And if you do it via the textbook, you're going to have great results as a company. Unfortunately, that's not that simple. I think um, what I have done is combined the lean for the uh, processes that were um, um, straightforward and that were predictable and that were produced in mass, like creating certain amount of assets that were just a repetitive task that you need to do in a row to get through a whole batch with that of Agile. And Agile usually applies to new features where you're gonna try to find the fun. So probably the biggest bang for my buck and the area that I should really focus on with Lean is to figure out what is the thing that is the, I'm gonna say like the biggest treadmill uh, part of my content yes. production. So if it's a match three, it's probably match three levels. If it's clash of clans, it's probably new buildings or new troops or something like that as they kind of release That's right. them. Um, okay. So figure out where that, uh, point is, um, and then, you know, try to figure out the consistency and how to improve that, you know, over time. Um, yes. Do you think that, um, well, let's say, um, I, I have heard that lean, I don't remember if it originally came from the like Honda creation, but kind of over in yes. Japan in the, that's right. The, when they created the cars and, and they had really like creative uses where they would like change up their machinery to like create different parts of the cars and they reuse a whole bunch of stuff, which was very different than, you know, Henry Ford's the traditional, you know, line that went through. Um, so when I think about content treadmill and games, which is something that is on a lot of people's mind of how yep. do I keep up with these players? Because it seems like no matter how much you produce, like players are going to eat through that before you can keep up with them. Right. Um, content reusability. Um, does that become a part of like lean at all or, or different ways that you think about, like, how do I get the most bang out of this content that I'm creating? Yeah, for sure. I think lean really comes down to how can you streamline the content that we have and get the most out of it? So how can we perfect it? So it's about perfecting what you have. 
Whilst on the other end, uh, if we look at Agile, it's more about um, finding answers for emerging expectations and uh, that you might find by exploring how users behave. That, that's the biggest difference that um, um, you can see between the two different methodologies. But in games, we have both, usually. <laughs> Would you say that using more of an agile approach earlier in the game process, like as you're just creating prototypes, getting into soft launch kind of a realm, it should be more on the agile side because you haven't got to the point of producing all yes, the content? Yes, I think so. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, unless you were to create um, a skin of a game, right? So let's say you have a certain type of game where you know, you're know you replacing the whole art layer. Then of course, that is more of a lean production heavy uh, type of game uh, that I know that uh, a lot of people out here you know, are looking into. But um, if you come up with a brand new game, a brand new feature, you got to experiment more before you can start streamlining. Gotcha. Okay, that is very interesting. Um, for folks that are maybe thinking about trying this, we've kind of talked about some of the pros. What are maybe some of the cons that would come from you know trying a lean methodology when they're you know traditionally used to this agile? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things you know that you would need to be kind of guarded for, I suppose. Um, one thing that you should not conflict is even though you apply lean, and let's say that you're booking great success creating those match levels or creating assets or whatever you know your application might be, it does not necessarily mean that that's the right thing to focus on as a team. Okay, what I mean by that is there might be still more um, beneficial things to look into as a team than mass producing assets, for example. Um, people, you know, get sometimes so caught up at KPIs and perfecting, you know, oh, we did more than last time and even better and even faster. And it was great with, you know, um, a brand new process, but perhaps the time is spent better experimenting and people get a lot, uh, sometimes get a bit too far creating a lot of content or a lot of um, uh, things before they actually know that that content is what the user wants. <laughs> yeah. Um, so essentially, if you don't know what your bullseye is for this piece of content, it probably doesn't make sense to try to optimize for that because you're just, you know, yep. you, you don't know what you're optimizing for. You need that North star right. that you're shooting for. Uh, that makes sense. Have you gone through that process at all ever? What do you mean by just try, uh, testing out the different well, content? Well, yeah, like, ha yeah. Have, have you started to try a lean process at all yet? Yes. So we have lean processes, yes, uh, that we're working on. And um, those kind of uh, emerged. You know, I, I don't want to go into too much details, so unfortunately. But um, those come from a lot of user research. That is key. Like, you need to validate that whatever it is you're doing, whether it's uh, art content or gameplay content, that this is something that really resonates because it's a often heavy investment to invest in that content pipeline or in that art pipeline. So if you're going in the wrong direction, um, that is wasted effort. Um, we have gone through that, uh, it, it was successful. But of course, you know, um, it, it's still games and uh, customer demands change. So it's an ongoing process, unfortunately. You will never know for 100% for sure, this is what the uh, user wants and then you're, you're golden. I wish, I wish we got to that point, but too much happening in the landscape. Yeah. Or maybe here's, here's a question. What's maybe one of the biggest mistakes that you've made with either agile or implementing lean, you know, with your teams where, um, you know, you learn some lessons and maybe here's how you do it in the future to, uh, avoid those mistakes happening again. Sure. I think something that I did when I was just starting out in my career was I really tried anyways to follow the textbook of any methodology because I thought this is how I've learned agile, you know, I did my certified courses and this is how I meant to be doing it. And I think you'll soon realize um, when you're trying to apply that in, in real life that not all these methodologies actually work for you and your team. 
and that there isn't actually a team in the world that is perfectly nailing every single detail that these uh, processes uh, prescribe. You always will need to make some adaptations. And people see these, you know, processes that Agile or Lean prescribe as gospel, right? Trying to follow it perfect. But in, in reality, um, game development or any real life is slightly more complex. So you should see them as tools trying to help you make better games. But the goal is not to fulfill the methodology because that doesn't necessarily equal a perfect game at the end. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my advice. Focus on the game. That's great. Um, thinking just a little bit higher, um, just as a producer, um, what are some things that you've been able to um, do with your teams over the years that have made them uh, more efficient and better able to actually, you know, create the outcomes for players, which is what we really want? Hmm. Very good question. I think, I think the facilitation of communication is clearly something that, that I'm proud of, that um, is very beneficial. I always joke that it's hard to measure, right? It's really hard to measure what, whether one producer is better than another or what our impact is in the first place. But usually the first things that you'll see if, uh, if a producer you know, is not there or um, if, if there are not enough producers is that communication usually starts lagging behind. Because one thing that tends to happen, especially in multidisciplinary teams like ours, is that people become you know, stuck in their bubble. You know, um, artists will look at the art world, and tech is in their little tech world, um, tech art is in the tech world, uh, tech art world, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's our role really to trying to, um, you know, make sure that the communication between these departments is flowing um, the, to the best of our abilities uh, and make sure that they're, you know, being considerate uh, of each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, Fine. So, you know, for me, I actually started, um, when I started my first company, I struggled to find a, a technical co-founder. And so I taught myself how to code and I built it all. Now, um, I am a very like low to mid-tier, you know, developer, like the people we have now are much smarter, much faster, much better. You don't really want me touching code. Um, but it's very valuable um, that I've gone through the process of learning how to code and learning how to think about, um, you know, doing code and, and stuff like that. Because um, now if I have an idea or I have a request for, you know, a developer, I can at least at a high level go, yeah, that'll probably take like, you know, two minutes or 30 seconds, or that might take like three months. Um, do you find that encouraging teams to go a little bit more um, cross, say genre, but cross role? So like, you know, your artists learning a little bit more about the programmers, your programmers learning a little bit more about the artists and how they like actually link up the, the art and the different pieces like that so that you just start to have a better understanding of how each different team kind of works and how long things take and, and those different elements? Yeah, I would definitely recommend uh, that there is at least some fundamental understanding, especially, you know, for your more senior uh, level staff and uh, uh, leadership staff to have some understanding about what the main complications are of how your department uh, impacts another. So, um, for example, if you are working in the art team and let's say you're working on animation or, or, or UI, um, I think it's a very critical um, um, critical skill to understand how the tech team will eventually help to implement and work with your work. Because what I often see, I think this is maybe a little bit, you know, by nature, of course, the artists are going to try to push all the boundaries, make it look as beautiful as possible. That's exactly what we're asking of them. Uh, the tech team wants to write as most efficient and clean code as they possibly can. And then there's a business that throws some deadlines on top <laughs> that you are trying to hit together. So making trade-offs and knowing in advance what causes more or less work or what's harder or easier to implement, I think is, is really useful. 
but that also goes the other way around um, when when tech you know needs to understand that of course art needs to have at least a certain uh, quality level uh, and we cannot just rush in you know everything that just is created within a single day because the the game needs to have charm and needs to attract players it is equally important um, yeah. and I think the you know best scenes that I've seen have got a really good understanding of both sides. Gotcha. So I want to spend our last few minutes speaking about probably one of the most fun topics and something that I struggle a lot with. Um, you know, anytime you've got a live game or product or anything, you probably have what 400, a thousand open tickets of things that you can do. And maybe you get a roadmap and you've got your big features outlined and stuff. Um, but you're always hearing from different users of the things that they want, be it quality of life things, you've got crashes that are happening, you've got um, you know, maybe execs that are learning things and coming down and wanting you to like do this thing ASAP. Um, what's your process for handling all those things for maybe someone that's like struggling with this right now and figuring out what are the things that we can actually do in this, let's say, sprint right now sure. um, to, to work forward? Ooh, interesting question. So there is an ideal theoretic solution and there's a reality solution. So, the, you know, just well, let's, let's hear both. The, the theory is, of course, depending on which prioritization method you pick, you would hope that when you gather all that feedback from your users, from your stakeholders, from your peers, from the team, um, that you can apply a certain um, um, prioritization method to it. And then simply you would work on whatever is on top of that backlog on top priority. Unfortunately, in the real world for producers, it often doesn't really work like that. And the problem usually is dependencies, okay? So let's say that we have all agreed that if we only added feature X to the game, then all the biggest problems would be solved and everyone would be happy. Let's assume, you know, it's never that simple, but let's assume we agree. The reality is that we'll first need to be uh, going to your game design, your UI UX, your art team needs to have a path. Maybe some of this can happen in parallel, but there's a certain flow to things before it can, you know, be engineered, tested and shipped. So often what happens is I've got like uh, stakeholders that really want something done and are wondering why we're not coding this right now, or is this not going in the game right now? It's because, yeah. well, we have nothing ready. We have no uh, details ready to build this for you right now. So I wish right. I could do this, but reality is there's other work that is ready to work on. So that's what we're doing. And that's uh, like I mentioned, the expectation that you got to manage. Um, it, it takes time to go through the funnel. And it's not always worth it rushing and going straight to engineering and, and trying to get it into the game. It, it's too complicated to make a game. Yeah. So really it's just about expectation setting and, you know, making people realize that, hey, love to do this, but the reality is, is we're not ready to do this kind of a thing. Um, have you ever used a process um, like I've heard of some game teams, what they'll do is they'll say, okay, what is the biggest problem that our game has right now? Um, and let's say it's midterm retention from like day seven to 14 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I've identified that that's the biggest problem and that's what I want to fix. Then you right. can come forward and you put together all these different ideas of mm -hmm. what you might do to fix that or improve that, I should say. Um, and then I've heard of them kind of creating different columns for like technical complexity, chance of success, chance of success, yep. time frame, you know, whatnot. And you kind of rate the values and you come up with, yes. okay, this is the winner. It's going to take a medium amount of time, but have the highest likelihood of success or, or, or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have seen teams that did that. Uh, that's right. And you can, you know, some people... Uh, or in certain teams, we have rated some of these items on um, one factor, some have rated them on five factors, all varying from 
time, effort, uh, complexity, unknowns. Uh, you, you can come up with several parameters trying to rate these and, and um, predict what their impact is going to be. But um, at the end of the day, your production problem usually remains the same. Yes, you will get a certain list of priorities out there, but unfortunately, you usually cannot do it all at once. Um, it still needs to, you know, get some proper thought and specification before you can start implementing. I think one thing that was really helpful that I've had in a live game in the past was um, we had a game where we had a lot of incoming um, life problems. Okay. And um, of course, those usually got prioritized right, right away because they were blocking real users from having a great time. Now, we kept having to pull developers for new features and you know improvements that we thought were going to be great for the game off to help and you know hot fix a, a lot of these problems and that could only go on for so long because there was always a fire right mm -hmm. and one thing that i highly recommend is if you're in that position try to find and see if you can split your team in a pod or a lane some people call them where you have people yeah. that are dedicated to a problem let's say life issues in your example just now, you could have a team that was midterm uh, mid retention. You could have a team that's focused on the uh, onboarding experience, the first time user experience. Mm -hmm. And if you group people like that, it's slightly safer um, to assume that you can predict their uh, workload and roadmap because they're isolated. And this is uh, something that um, um, Ed Catmull also wrote about. He was the uh, president of Pixar. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it was interesting when he first, uh, you know, introduced this concept. Uh, he was, um, well, he was talking about movies, of course, uh, animated movies. But he said that they were creating specific teams for particular tasks, and they would not allow people to borrow from one team or another. Because if you think about it, most of the time when there's an urgent issue in your game, you pull your brightest heads together and you're trying to fix it as soon as possible. And oh my gosh. But that is very disruptive for whatever, you know, these people yeah. were doing. They could come from completely different teams. So what Ed Catmull at Pixar did at the time was he was trying to limit that borrowing, if you will, of people. <laughs> and he found that, A, it made people in his team more creative. Because if you know you're the one that needs to fix your, your problem, well, you, you, yeah. <laughs> you're going to find something, right? And uh, therefore, there was also uh, less disruption for all the other teams working on their own individual things. So that is something I would recommend as well. I've seen this successful in one of the live games I was at. Divide your team, especially when you're alive, there's always gonna be a hot issue coming in. Uh, so make sure that you dedicate people to, to deal with that. Yeah. I've heard of some teams that will do things like, hey, we're going to dedicate 20% of our time towards player quality of life issues or crashes or things like that. So like every Friday, sure. we just focus on fixing those things. Like, have you seen that work well? I have seen it. Um, I have seen uh, examples where there was like a certain bug fixing day. So uh, there would be, you know, a Friday or a Wednesday where people were only fixing bugs. I think that works particularly well if you're not live yet. If you're in early development, it's a nice way to keep your uh, code clean and make sure that, you know, you groom it from time to time. But to be quite honest with you, I personally prefer when these kind of um, periods are near the end of a milestone where you have dedicated time, right, when you mm -hmm. build all the features before you need to deliver that you polish things up. Yeah. So, you know, in this case, would you almost recommend having like a player quality of life or crash little team yes. where they're, you know, focus is just those. Yeah. I would. Okay. So uh, we have had that in the past where people rotated as well. Um, so um, not every team member loves, you know, that, that hot seat because usually, especially with life issues, that's a very, you know, mm -hmm. uh, pressing uh, uh, matter. Yeah. Uh, so we had people, you know, that rotated within that team and that works too. You can plan that from, you know, a couple of sprints in advance and find people that, you know, will be in that seat for, for a while before someone else takes over. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we're pretty much out of time here. So I've got like one more question and then one unofficial question for you. 
Um, for creating these small little teams, let's say for someone that's focused on the onboarding experience, like what roles or people do you need to have like at a minimum in that team to be able to be sufficient and be able to execute on your job? Oh, that's a very good question. It depends a little bit on what the, the core focus is. Uh, I definitely recommend it's less so about the roles, but more about the function. So I would definitely recommend that there's an owner of that objective, right? This could be a product person, this could be a game designer, this could be a producer, but someone who owns and leads that team, okay? Then slightly depending on how complex um, this objective is and the solutions that are on that backlog, you wanna include your artists, your uh, engineers, your um, uh, tech arts, and of course, QA should be in every one of them, just making sure that we're de developing according to, uh, to our standards. But it's, it varies uh, depending on what kind of solutions you want to implement. So probably like at least three to five people, your owner, your developer, and your artist kind of a person, assuming that artist can also do some of the technical stuff and, you know, QA is, is always a part of stuff. Okay. You want that's to make great. sure that it's a self-sustaining team. That's that's what matters. So depending on what kind of objectives you give them, as long as you've got every uh, department covered, that would work. That's great. Well, awesome. So I have one last question because we are on the Master Retention Podcast, of course. And Ruby, that is, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to increase, you know, player retention or regularity? Like how do you keep your players coming back, you know, each day, each week, month by month, year by year, et cetera. Ooh, the one tip, let's see, from my point of view, always um, the, the, the biggest thing that's going to make them come back is understanding what makes it fun for them. I think this is, this might sound like a very straightforward advice, but it's actually more complex. I see this all the time where we're developing games and we're having an assumption of what's going to be fun. And we sometimes over game design of how this feature will work or how this game will work. And we're putting so much effort into it. And then we let people play it and they play in a completely different behavior than we were expecting. They're playing and they're having a good time, but they're making their own little fantasy about why this is fun. And if you discover what that is and you obviously cultivate on that, that's what is going to keep them coming back. That's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Ruby. If people do have questions for you, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, for sure. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you find me under Ruby Earnings and uh, I'm happy to help you with any production questions or yeah, any inquiries there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Have a good day. All right. Thank you.